And while you are turning there, let me pass out the outline. So John 5, and uh, man, this is quite a challenging passage. I don't know if you've stumbled across John 5 or you're going through your readings through the Gospel of John. You come to this passage, you think, man, this is a tricky passage. And I wrestled through this passage a lot this week. And sometimes when I'm just, uh, man, it's it's hard. I'm wrestling through it. I'm not really sure I'm getting it. I'll go see what MacArthur had to say about it, listen to his sermon or something. And even he said, this is a really hard passage. And uh, so I was like, okay, good, good. It's not just, not just me. Um, so it's hard, but man, it's just like when you're digging in a mine, you're, you're, you're laboring. Uh, there's something really good there. Um, so it's going to take a little work, um, but the result is, uh, is worth it, I'm sure. Um, so John 5, and we're in verses 30 through 47. Um, this morning and next week we'll be here as well. Um, and Jesus has just finished making some pretty astonishing claims about his person. So we weren't here last week. A couple weeks ago, um, we were in verses 19 through 29 of John 5, where Jesus is sort of defending his person against the accusations of the Jewish leadership. They want to put him to death. He's claiming equality with God. And in those verses, verses 19 through 29, it's Jesus' defense of himself. It's that he is indeed very God of very God, equal with God, and yet that is not a threat to the monotheism of the Jews. There is but one God. And so the whole point is to explain his sonship. What does it mean that he is God and yet he is the son of God in perfect harmony with, with God the Father? But now we come to these verses, verses 30 through 47, and there's a new problem that arises, which Jesus now is going to address. There's a couple things. Number one, if Jesus is making these great claims about himself, that he is indeed very God of very God, the son of God, how is it that Jesus is not guilty of self-promotion and self-glory? How is he not an arrogant competitor with God. God said, my glory, I will not share with another. How can that be? Jesus is claiming these magnificent things about himself. Number two, on what basis does Jesus make these claims? I mean, anybody can go around saying anything about themselves that they want, right? So just because you make a claim about yourself, that doesn't mean anything. How can Jesus make these these claims? What right does Jesus have to make the claims he does? And why should he expect his hearers and you to believe them? That's the question. And the answer to these two questions is the same. Jesus has come on the authority of another. And he has been testified to by another, the Father. So think about it this way. A king that sends his emissary, his delegate, his representative um, to to some people. um, If that person claimed his status as being sent from the king, the unique emissary of the king, he wouldn't be arrogant in doing so, right? Actually, he'd be arrogant if he did not claim that. That's what's going on with, with Christ here. He claims what he does, and they're credible, and to be fully embraced, 
because of the certain testimony the Father has given about him. Um, The Father has not left Jesus without witness. That's the point. What Jesus says about himself, he says, and he's not after his own glory, and he's not without credible witness. Put it this way, Jesus is not calling on people to make a blind leap in the dark. That's not what biblical faith is. It's not just, okay, rationalist, you know, I have no reason, no base. I'm just going to believe something, jump into the dark. That's not what Jesus is claiming. That's not what he's demanding from you. There is absolute reason and certainty for you to believe Christ. And in fact, you're guilty if you don't. Um, so Jesus says it's that clear. It's that certain. Uh, and that's what we're going to see this morning. So in a sense, beginning in verse 19, Jesus has been defending himself um, in claiming equality with God, explaining what that means. But now in verses 30 through 47, um, he defends himself by explaining the credibility of his claims. But if we stop there, as though this section is just about Jesus defending himself, we would be missing something very significant that's going on here. You see, ultimately, Jesus is coming. It was not that Jesus was put on trial by the world in his coming, but rather the world was put on trial by Jesus. That's the whole point what's going on here. What we're going to see in these verses is that Jesus turns the tables of the courtroom completely around. Uh, It's very ironic what, what happens in this text. He turns from acting as the defendant to acting as the prosecutor, actually acting as the judge. And the very witnesses that he appeals to in his defense, he actually shows that these same witnesses are testifying against people for their unbelief and exposing their true hearts. Um, Amazing. Put it this way. The fact that people put him on trial and examine his credentials and then reject him says more about their condition than it does Christ's identity. That's Jesus' point. How many people here have gone to the, the, I don't know how to say it, the Louvre Museum in France? Anyone? Okay, got a couple. All right, I have not been, would love to go. Um, Some magnificent works of art in there. And as you're in there, let's say you see a group of um, stupid teenagers uh, going around and uh, no appreciation at all for uh, the art. And they're mocking it. And they're, they're, they're next to the Mona Lisa, and uh, they're pointing out its flaws and critiquing it and, and tearing it down. And uh, what's going on there? Are they judging the Mona Lisa? Are they discrediting the beauty and the magnificence of that piece of work by da Vinci? No. What's happening? They're being judged by the Mona Lisa. They're being exposed in their foolishness and in their total ignorance of fine art. That's what's going on here. Christ is not losing anything as people are rejecting him. They are being exposed. The true heart condition as they are um, rejecting him. So it's quite a profound passage indeed. So I've entitled this whole section, Credible Claims and Culpable Unbelief. This morning we're only going to be going through verses 30 through 40, uh, which is the first main section um, in these uh, in these verses. And these first 11 verses we're going to look at will teach us that the Father's, oh, one, Father's unmistakable witness about the Son removes excuses and exposes the heart. Removes excuses and exposes the heart. 
Um, look at verses 30 through 32. We get the first uh, point here. The son's reliance on the father. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 is really a transition verse. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, Sounds very similar to verse 19. He says, as the son, I completely imitate the father. I'm in perfect harmony and alignment with the father. And therefore, my judgment is just. Um, It's righteous. In the Old Testament, the assumption was that God's judgment is always just. Genesis 18, will not the judge of the whole world do what is just? That's the assumption. And Jesus says, my judgment is just as righteous as the Father's. I'm in perfect alignment with him. If I was not for a moment, my judgment would not be absolutely righteous and just. So verse 30 really points us back to where we came from, that previous section, but it also points us forward to what's coming. You can see the previous section, he referred to himself constantly as the son, son of man, son of God. But beginning in verse 30, look how he talks about himself. I, 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 I. So this is a new section where he's just really emphasizing now his, his person. But verse 30 also points forward by way of, ah, wrong one. Oh my goodness. Come over here. There we go. Uh, by way of illustration. So just as the son's judgment is absolutely just because he judges in perfect harmony with the father's will, so also the son's claims about himself were absolutely true because he bases them what the father has testified concerning him. So look at verses 31 through 32 now. See how similar this sounds to verse 30. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So let's think about this for a minute. Jesus' point here is that my claims are absolutely true because they're based on what the Father has testified about me. So look at verse 31 again. He says, if I bear witness about myself, then my testimony is not true. Now, what in the world does that mean? Why? Well, look over at chapter 8, verse 12. Something very similar is said, and it sort of helps us to understand this. Chapter 8, verse 12. It says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Here he is testifying about himself, claiming something. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So that sounds a lot like what Jesus just said in verse 31. Verse 14 here in 8. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is still true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. So what does that mean? Man, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Uh, But it's actually not a contradiction. Uh, What's going on here? I think it's very clear Jesus is not saying that simply by making a claim about himself, testifying about himself automatically disqualifies whatever he says, right? We get that from chapter eight. That's apparently what the Pharisees thought he was saying. Oh, you claim something about yourself, boom, you're immediately discredited. That's not what he's saying. Um, seems that's what the Pharisees interpreted, interpreted him to mean. So what does he mean then? 
I think here in chapter 531, the point is simply to say that if he testifies about himself alone, without other witnesses, that his claims can easily be dismissed as true, right? Again, anybody can say anything about themselves that they want. This goes back to the Old Testament principle in Deuteronomy. You have to have how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses for any matter to be established. That's Jesus's point. If his claims were without corroborating testimony, they would not be able to demand absolute trust. Right? So look again, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. They're not legally valid. They can't be weighty enough to demand absolute trust. But beyond this, I think there's something a little bit more going on. What has Jesus been claiming? What is his fundamental claim? That he is what? He's the son of God, equal with God and the unique son of the father. Um, To be equal with God is to be the unique son and his agent through whom he's going to work. That's quite a claim, right? And if Jesus made these claims on his own and God the father was not saying the same thing, right? Not only would his claims be legally invalid, but they would be blasphemous and false. So that's Jesus' point. If I alone am testifying this about myself, not only are my claims legally invalid, but I'm found to be a blasphemer because the Father is not saying the same thing about me. It's very significant. Look down at verse 32 now. Jesus is not bearing witness about himself by himself. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Who is this another? What do you think? It's a little bit of debate on there, uh, out there, but yep. So there's a few, yep. There's a few um, options there, but the majority of of people think, and I, I think too, this is God the Father he's talking about here. I think with the context of verse 30 and 31 and where he's going to go in verse 37, it's crystal clear. He's talking about the father. Look again. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know certainty. The testimony he bears about me is true. The rest of this passage flows from this this statement. Um. There's a couple things going on. The father's testimony about the son is first for Jesus' own sake. Um, The father declares about Christ um, who he is, and what Jesus declares is based on what the father has declared about him. Um, But then, so in other words, Jesus declares what he does because of the father's testimony. But then after that, the father's testimony was not just for Jesus. It was for the sake of those who would hear Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not guilty of self-glory and blasphemy because he's only claiming what the father has already said about him. And his claims are credible and certain because the father has publicly testified about the identity of Jesus. So the question then becomes, okay, well, how has the father publicly testified about the son, right? Um, It's a logical question, and I'm glad you asked. And that is the next verses, verses 33 through 40. 
There we go. The father's witness about his son. Um, how has the father borne witness? Jesus in this section gives us three major witnesses. It is John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and then the Old Testament scriptures. So we're going to go through these one at a time. First, the father is borne witness to his son through John the Baptist. My mouse writes, so I don't quit doing that. Look at verse um, 33. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Um, so Jesus begins by giving us the nature of John's witness. Uh, he said, You sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So Jesus is referring back to John 1, verse 19. Remember that? The Pharisees send this delegation to John, and they ask him, Who are you? Recognize he's someone significant. And how does John respond? Do you remember? It's completely negative, right? He says, they said, are you this? No, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Like that's the testimony of John. It's completely negative. Um, Why? Why was John's message like that? It's because his entire purpose was to prepare for Christ. It says he testified to the truth. So what's that? You tell me. He testified to the truth. What would you say it is? Uh, the confession that Christ is the Messiah. It is. The identity of Christ. Right? So what are some things that John said? Do you remember? Lamb of God, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that over and over again. That's right. What else did John say? What did John testify Good, excellent. He saw the Spirit descend and remain. Yep. What else? Yeah, because he's pre-existent. He existed before me. Yep, excellent. He declared that he's the Lord of Isaiah 40. I've come to prepare the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord. Um, so John said all these things. John was testifying um, to all of these things. That was his function. But before Jesus goes on to talk about John's witness, he needs to make a clarification. Look at verse 34 here, the clarification. Jesus says, not that I receive the witness of a person. So John testifies to the truth. The Pharisees sent to him to ask him who he is. And Jesus stops. He says, but, but not that I receive the testimony of a person. So why does Jesus say that? What, is, what does that mean? I think he means ultimately my identity does not rest merely on what a human being says about me. If Jesus's claims ultimately rest on what a person says about him, I don't care how great that person is. It still lacks the most important criteria, which is God, right? Ultimately, Jesus's claims don't depend on John the Baptist, but the Baptist's witness is still important and helpful. Well, Why? because he was sent by the Father. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Something very similar is said. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The purpose was that all would be saved. All would, through John, be directed by his testimony to Jesus himself. 
That leads to the next point in verse 35. We'll come back here, chapter 1, verse 6, in just a minute. The function of John's witness and the failure of the people. At this point, it's very important to remember that John was almost universally acknowledged as a prophet. There was no question in Israel at that time. Everybody esteemed John to be a prophet. Um, Look at verse 35. It says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Um, It says here that even the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership recognized his unique status. They were willing to rejoice. Um, The idea is eager excitement at the coming of John. They recognized he was something. He was a prophet. Um, What is he? This verse says he was a lamp. Now, back in verse 6, it said John was not the light, right? But here it says he was the lamp. So what's going on? Um, Even think like uh, Psalm 119, 105. What does it say? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light into my path. The Old Testament was called a lamp. The idea is that it's God's revelation. It gives light in in revealing the truth of God. And John was like that, just like the Old Testament. But he wasn't the light. He was a lamp that was pointing forward to the ultimate light that was coming in Christ. And that was John's function. um, And everybody knew it. But this verse ends really negatively. Everyone knew he was a prophet, someone sent by God. They were excited by his message. but, But look at how this ends. It says, you were willing to rejoice literally for an hour in his light. What's the problem here? Those people who rejoiced in John the Baptist's light failed to embrace the one John the Baptist came to proclaim. These people were excited he's here, but they didn't embrace Messiah, the one he's come to point to. And we're going to see the same pattern in the, the next two witnesses. And really it was the problem with the Jews altogether is they failed to be led by the witnesses to Christ, to Christ himself. They grew satisfied. So think about the signs. That's the very next witness we're going to see. They love the signs, but they were not led by the signs to the one the signs pointed to. They love the Old Testament. They weren't led by the Old Testament to the one they pointed to. Same with John the Baptist. And that is a massive exposure of their heart. And we're going to see what what the real problem was uh, for them. So this is the first witness um, the father gave for the son, John the Baptist. Any claim that Jesus makes has already been corroborated by John the Baptist. That's what he's saying. But look at verse 36 now. Um, He has a witness greater than John. He doesn't need a man to testify to him. Look at verse 36. It's through his works. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So what are his works? What do you think? What what does his works include? Certainly includes what? His miracles, his signs. I mean, we just saw a massive one at the beginning of chapter 5. He heals this lame man. Astonishing miracle. Um, His works are not just his miracles, so it's his entire ministry. It's everything he's doing, right? Look what it says. The works the Father has given me to accomplish, these works are from the Father for the purpose of fulfilling the very works that I am doing. In other words, everything I am doing testifies about me. My entire ministry, my entire everything is from the Father for me to fulfill 
and it all testifies about me, especially my signs, um, but my entire ministry culminating in what? The cross and the resurrection. Um, so this is, uh, he gives us the nature of his works and then he gives us the message. What are the works declaring? Look at the very end. They bear witness about me, what? That the father has sent me. So what are the works declaring? Jesus is doing these signs. He's doing all these things. What are they declaring? He has been sent by the Father. So wow, how? How do you think? How do these works declare that he's been sent by, by the Father? Don't cheat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. It can't be done. It's good. Yep. It's good. It's excellent. Yep. The uh, the works were very significant for a prophet. You read the Old Testament. It was a stamp. It was a mark. They were sent by God. Um, but Jesus's works are not just of any old prophet. It exceeds, it blows Daniel out of the water. Go over to uh, chapter 15, verse 24. I'll try to nail these quick because we got some pretty awesome stuff coming. Chapter 15, verse 24. Look at what Jesus says here. This is amazing. If I had not done among them the works, what? That no one else did. This is not just the works of an ordinary prophet. These are works no one has ever done since the foundation of the world. Chapter 9. No one has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind, the man says. If I had not done the works no one else had done, they would not be guilty of sin. That means specifically the sin of rejecting Messiah. But now they've seen and have hated both me and and the Father. Um, Go back to chapter 10, verse 24. Chapter 10, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name, not for his own glory, in my father's name, testify about me that I'm the Christ. Um, It's because of their extraordinary nature. And because of their their alignment with the Old Testament expectations of Messiah, it should have been obvious he was sent by the Father as this very one. But next, how else do they do it? They do it because they reveal Jesus is in the Father, the Father in Jesus. In other words, he has a unique relationship with God. He's not any old prophet. He is the very Son of God. Look over at, uh, we'll just do one, um, chapter 10, verse 37. Ten thirty-seven. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand what. What should the works testify? What are they declaring? The Father is in me, and I am my Father. I have a unique, personal relationship with God the Father as God the Son. That's what they were crystal clear declaring to everybody um, that could have seen them. 
So that's where we are to conclude from the sign. He is sent from God, not just sent like any old prophet, but sent as the unique son of God, very God of very God. He is giving life to this man from his own power and being and ability. And it completes his subservience to his father, the unique son of God. That's what his works are declaring. And it should have been obvious, but by and large, the people did the same to his works what they did to John the Baptist. They loved the works. They loved John the Baptist. And they did not go beyond them to Christ. Why? Well, we're going to see in this, in this next point, verses 37 through, through 40. God is revealed um, and witness, born witness to his son through the Old Testament scriptures. And these verses now are really just rubber um, meeting the road. Um, they're not only giving us a third witness. They're, they're, they're really going to begin to start peeling off the layers of the unbelief of the heart and expose how culpable unbelief in Christ really is. Where is this coming from? Why are they failing to go from witnesses to Christ? If it's so clear, what's going on? I mean, if these witnesses are really that explicit and true, then why aren't people responding to them? I mean, in a courtroom, if you bring compelling evidence, people respond to it, right? What's going on? Could it be that these witnesses really aren't that compelling? Or could there be another factor going on? Could it be that the jury is massively prejudiced? Or even worse, the jury is really the guilty party against whom these witnesses are testifying. And that's what's going on. Jesus is turning the tables now on them to expose them to show where this unbelief is coming from. It's in these verses that this, this pivot happens from defending myself to now accusing uh, the Jewish people. And he begins by exposing their total ignorance of God in verses 37 to 38. Let's read it. He says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. I'm sorry, that's chapter 10. Verse 37, chapter 5. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's exposing their total ignorance of God. Um, so just to see how this is intensifying. So he begins, Father bears witness through John the Baptist. But then Jesus has something even greater, his works. And now it escalates to the the, the, the like climactic point. How has God most clearly in the, the greatest testimony of the Father? Is it in the scriptures? Why aren't people believing it? Before he goes into it, he's going to expose the heart. They don't know God. Look what it says. He says, you have not at any time heard his voice, nor have you seen his form. Um, I don't think this is talking about, you know, the voice of God that came when he was baptized or at transfiguration. None of these people would have even had a chance to hear that. It's not talking about seeing a physical form of God. None of these people would have seen that. The idea of seeing and hearing means you have an intimate acquaintance with somebody. How do you know somebody except by hearing them and seeing them, right? John Calvin said of these verses that these are metaphorical expressions by which he intends to state generally that they are utterly estranged from the knowledge of God. <laughs> it's quite a, a stunning thing to tell the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. You don't know God. That's what he says 
That's what he says first here. Their failure to see and hear God through Christ reveals they don't, they don't have an ounce of true knowledge of God. But beyond that, their failure to believe the Son reveals never having rightly received the scriptures. Look again at verse 38. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you, the scriptures. Evidence, how do you know you don't have the word abiding in you? You don't believe in the one whom he has sent. What does it mean to have the word of God abiding in you? Think back again to like Psalm 119, right? Your word I have stored up in me, right? I, I have treasured up your word. It's abiding in me by faith. I, I not only know your word, I've, I've internalized it and brought it near. And these people, these Jews he's talking about, uh, they knew their Old Testaments. They were zealous studiers of the Old Testament. We're going to see that in the very next verse even. But there's something really wrong with it. How do we know? Look at verse 38 again. What's wrong with their internalizing the word? How do we know they don't really know it? Because they don't believe the Son. In other words, Jesus so accords with everything written in the Old Testament. He so perfectly aligns with it. Everything that was prophesied, everything that was declared, that the only reason why people would fail to receive Jesus, especially those who know the Old Testament, is because they don't truly believe in it. They never truly received it. Oh, they know a lot about it. But if they really knew it, if they really believed it, it would have been obvious. So Jesus said. But now he goes on in verse 39 to expose their misunderstanding of the scriptures. And this is really uh, where he, he gets this point, how the father has testified. The father's greatest testimony of Jesus was the Old Testament scriptures. And yet people failed to receive the Old Testament rightly, and so they failed to recognize Christ. That's the point. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures. The idea there is an intense uh, study of, of, of scripture. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. These were zealous students of the Old Testament. I mean, I just can imagine how astonished they would have been that Jesus would say this to them. Um, if you look at any kind of Jewish rabbinic uh, interpretation, they have just volumes and volumes of interpretation. Some of it's helpful. A lot of it is just fanciful and uh, exaggerations based on obscure details. Um, think about the Sabbath command that we saw at the very beginning of this chapter, how they just totally obscured the whole command. They, they, they chapter after chapter after chapter about how to not violate the Sabbath. It has nothing to do with the original intent. Getting so caught up on all of this um, obscure details, not getting the main point of the text of the Old Testament. What was the problem? The problem was they made the Old Testament scriptures ends in themselves. They assumed that we have it and we just study it and we have eternal life. They failed to see that the entire Old Testament is proclaiming the hopeless condition of man, the hopeless condition of Israel. The impossibility of Israel ever succeeding. That is the point. Israel was to be a son of God. They were to represent him as his unique, save people like a new Adam. And they failed. That's the point. You can't do it. They can't do it. They need another. They need the seed who is promised to Eve, who is then promised to Abraham and to David and the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 40 through 60, who would come and accomplish God's purposes on behalf of Israel and bear God's judgment 
on behalf of his people. That is the thrust of the Old Testament. It's screaming that Messiah is coming. It's screaming that it's not an end in itself. And they missed it. They failed, just as with the other witnesses. They loved the witness, and they weren't led beyond it to the one it was pointing to. But why? That's the million-dollar question. Why? What's wrong? Like, what is wrong with these people? Why are they continually missing the whole witnesses of God to the Son? Why aren't they going to the Son? If it's that obvious, why not? What's the problem? The answer is found in verse 40. This is the climax of this section. And then the next week and the following verses, it's just going to unpack what's going on here. Verse 40. Yet you refuse. It is literally, you do not want to. You do not want to come to me that you may have life. This is the root of their unbelief. The people do not believe in Jesus. They've misused God's word. They miss John the Baptist. They miss his signs. What's the root? Because they do not desire. It's the word. You don't desire to come to me. You don't want to come to me. That's the problem. The root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. It's Jesus' point. The root of unbelief is not that Jesus doesn't have credible witnesses. The root of unbelief is not that Jesus is not who he claims to be. It's not that he's failed in some instances to line up with the Old Testament expectations. It is because these people and all unbelievers, every unbeliever, does not come to Jesus because they don't want to. There's a want to problem, a desire problem, a bent of the heart that hates God and Christ. Oh, they, they, they'll love the Old Testament. They'll love John the Baptist. They'll love these signs. I don't want to go to Christ. Why? Next week's going to really unpack that. What's even at the root of this, I don't want to? I'll tell you now, it's pride, self-righteousness, protection of me, and ultimately the desire for human praise. That's at the root of it all. So what's going on here? The same is true of every unbeliever. Um, so we've got a couple minutes, and I just want to close with a couple implications um, and then open it up for your comments. But let me just say right now, this passage is so helpful because it emphasizes that Jesus is not calling you to jump in the dark. That's not faith. It's not Christianity. It's not illogical or irrational. There are reasons to believe, claims, credible, very credible. But yet people still reject. Well, why? Yes, we should demonstrate to them the credibility of the claims of Christ. But when they reject, we shouldn't be surprised. Nor should we try to manipulate the message. Nor should we try to manipulate them in any way. We must be aware that they're going to do so from a heart disposition. I don't want God. And until God does something to them, like he had to do to you, they will not believe. But guess what? We read in the last section, the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. Jesus speaks power in his word to change this heart condition, to change you, cause you to be born again, cause unbelievers to be born again. Um, so the first implication is give thanks to God. If you believe Christ, it's not because you're smarter than the average bear, not because, man, I've really figured out the evidences. He changed your heart. He gave you the want to. His mercy caused you to be born again. Give thanks to him. 
and then rest confidently in the power of the scriptures and the voice of Christ as you share it with others and plead with God to change their hearts. That's what must happen. Their want to has to change. Their devotion to self and their devotion to self-glory, as we're going to see next week, has to change. That's the problem. Number two, note how easy and deceptive it is to hold on to the trappings of religion, even good things, witnesses to Christ without grasping Christ. It's possible for a person to love and enjoy Christianity and the church and the Bible and all the trappings that come along with it and not know Christ. They delight in these things that are pointers to Christ or overflows from his person. They, they like religion. There's just no delight or personal trust in Christ. It's possible to read the Bible faithfully and be a regular church attender. But if through these things you are not led to know and trust and see my bankrupt position apart from Christ and grasping him with all of my might, you've misused those pointers and you don't know him. God's word and all the things in the church and the gospel were never meant to be ends in themselves. They were meant to drive you continually to Christ. You need him. I fear that many who claim to be Christians in the evangelical world claim to know God are in the same category as these Jews. They don't know him because they did not want to renounce their pride and their empty religion and be cast in total humility and dependence on Christ alone. Oh, they love the trappings. They love to study. They love theology. They love books. They love all this, but they don't love Christ. That's what a believer is. They're led by all these things to depend on him, know him, love him, cling to him. He's everything to me. So the point is to call us, whether for the first time or whether for the thousandth time, I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to believers this morning, be led to Christ. That's why we do everything. They're not ends in themselves. The preaching is not an ends in itself. It's that you would be just bankrupt in your sin every time you hear it, and I need Christ and run to him. Trust him for mercy and then trust him for help to change. Look to him. It's the point of everything. The ordinance is preaching, Bible study, prayer, conviction of sin. Drive you to Christ to know him, trust him, love him. But proud humanity will not do that unless something happens in their hearts. And that's the point. So this is a powerful uh, passage, and the courtrooms have been turned. Um, <laughs> Jesus is no longer on the defensive. Um, the focus is on us and, uh, and on every person. How will they respond to Christ and what will it expose about their hearts in the way that they do? So any questions, comments? We got just a couple minutes before we got to go. Um, yeah. Um, as, as I was reading this, I just wondered, you know, you read about the Jews and obviously a lot of the Pharisees believed in the Messiah. That was clear enough from the Old Testament. Yeah. But it seems like the disconnect was that they didn't believe that the Messiah would be God himself. Is Yes. Is there any you know mm-hmm. thing that you know of in Jewish history where the Jews, anybody, had an understanding of the Trinity? I mean, I know in Genesis it says like sure. let us yeah. make man in our image. Yeah. Um, but did anybody believe that back then? Like, would anybody espouse the Trinity? Um, Christ. So, uh, yeah. So let me be not nuanced here. I would say no. Um, 
Now, are there echoes of the Trinity in the Old Testament? Yes. Um, but I think what was so hard, what was so difficult for these Jews was the astonishment of what he's talking about here, um, that I am very God, a very God, and yet distinct from my Father. I, it would have been a new concept um, to them. Trinity obviously is as old as eternity past, right? Uh, but God gives his revelation progressively. They didn't need to know all the ins and outs of the triune God in the Old Testament. So it would have been a, a new concept, but yet the whole point of the section is that it doesn't contra- contradict Deuteronomy 6, 1 iota, right? That's Jesus' whole point here. So I would say that was the massive stumbling block um, to the Jews is that Messiah is very God of very God. I mean, you hear echoes in Isaiah about it, um, which is explicit with Jesus. The other is the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. Um, not at all according to their expectations. We're going to see it in the very next time next week. If a Messiah came that was self-exalting, how do you appeal the pride of man? Yes, come on, we like that kind of Messiah. It's because of how selfless and devoted the Father's glory Christ is that they hated him. And it's just exposing uh, what's, what's at the core of their hearts. Um, well, that's exactly where he goes next week. But um, So that's, yeah, they knew Messiah's coming. <laughs> it's not the kind that was prophesied and the kind that Jesus came to be. So it's a good question. Any other questions? Comments? Yes? If we have time, what, what caused them to misinterpret? Because they read the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Like what, what, what caused them to misinterpret? Like they thought the Messiah was going to be like this, and he really was yep. like this, which was fulfilling yep. the scriptures. So what, what, was, what was that? Where was the rub there? You know? Verse 40, they don't want to. It's the rebellion in the heart against God. So they, they perverted the scriptures. They missed the whole thrust. In other words, the Old Testament is crystal clear as the what Messiah would do, that he is coming, um, and that they need him. And uh, pride, self-righteousness, blindness. Um, didn't want him. Okay. It's good. Good questions, guys. Let me pray and uh, let's go. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it cuts and convicts, but let us never forget it's meant to drive us to Christ. Um, let us know him all our days. Let us hold fast to him. Every credible reason to believe him, know him. Thank you for it. Thank you for not left us in the dark. Um, Father, I ask you help us to love him more, to know him more, to trust him more, to be a more fruitful disciple of his. Help us be faithful in our testimony and bearing witness about him. We love you, Father. Thank you for your mercy. And ask that you would dismiss us with your blessing and teach us in the service to come. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, guys, you are dismissed.